Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. We wanted to let you know that our newest podcast, the Ukraine Daily Brief, is now the DSR Daily Brief. Each morning, Grant Haver and Chris Kotnor will bring you the top stories from the war in Ukraine, plus all the top foreign policy stories from around the world in under 10 minutes a day. Additionally, members receive an evening DSR Daily Brief newsletter with updates from earlier stories, plus any new developments occurring throughout the day. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive these and other member benefits including bonus content for all of our shows, access to our member Slack community, and more. The DSR Daily Brief is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they say it's springtime, but I don't believe it. We are joined today by a terrific group. For the first time joining us, we have Dr. Emma Belcher. She is the president of the Plowshares Fund Foundation, working to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons. Welcome, Emma. Thanks very much, David. We are also joined by our friend, Ambassador Doug Lute. Ambassador Lute is former U.S. permanent representative to NATO and uh, currently chairs the International Defense Practice at BGR Group. And I always feel compelled to point out that he was also a career military officer retiring as a lieutenant general. How are you today, Doug? I'm well, David. Good to be back with you. And of course, we are joined by our friend and regular, David Sanger, who's White House and national security correspondent and a senior writer at the New York Times. Hey, David. Great to be on with you and with uh, all my friends here. Well, great to have you. And uh, among those friends is John Wolfstahl. John is a former senior director for nonproliferation and arms control at the National Security Council and currently serves as a senior advisor to Global Zero. As you can gather from the sort of folks we've got here, we're talking not just about the situation in Ukraine, as we have been for now two months, but also about the prospect raised last week by both the CIA director and by the president of Ukraine of uh, Russia's use of nuclear weapons. We can talk about other WMDs in in all of this, what it might mean. I wrote something on this in the Daily Beast on Monday, if you want to go back and look at that, where some of these folks were cited. But I'd like to start with breaking news or relatively recent news and, uh, and turn to David to frame that. And that has to do with Russian ICBM test, which seemed to have a little bit of the role we were talking about here because uh, the follow, it was followed by a Russian statement, you know, essentially saying this is a warning to the West. 
How significant do you see that, David? Well, thanks for having me, David. And though it pains me to say it, I would actually urge everybody who's listening to read your daily beast piece because it, our, it actually, our regular listeners know just how much that pains it you. does pain me deeply um almost as much as it would pain loot to be saying something like this <laughs> um but it was really the most comprehensive sort of survey of views about how this may play out i'll start with yesterday's launch i didn't think there was anything terribly remarkable about yesterday's launch except its timing the missile that he showed off has been in development probably since Doug was screwing together tactical nuclear weapons in uh, in Germany, right? I mean, it's this has been a long-brewing uh, Russian missile. It has still not been deployed. Its characteristics are pretty well understood by the by the United States. So the only thing that was notable about the test was that that Putin chose to do it in this sequence where he, you know, announced he was putting his forces on alert eight weeks ago. He didn't. At points where other Russians have talked about using nuclear weapons if they felt that the existence of the regime was being threatened, but then expanding the possibilities of use to including whether or not uh, they might have been losing in a significantly dangerous way in Ukraine. They were all very vague about this. And then, of course, comes this test with Putin himself saying it should be a warning to countries to uh, respect Russia and uh, stop all of their chatter uh, about halting its um, resumption of a a sphere of influence. So what do we make of this? When uh, Bill Burns, the CIA director, was asked at a Georgia Institute of Technology forum about this last week by no other than Sam Nunn, the former senator who, of course, runs the Nuclear Threat Initiative and was responsible for helping dismantle many of the old Soviet weapons. He said, look, this is all a low probability problem, but one that has gotten increasing attention inside the U.S. government. If he had gone on, and he didn't, he might say that the attention focuses on the question of whether the Russians might try some kind of demonstration explosion, detonation, maybe over the Black Sea or something like that as a stay away from us message to NATO. Whether that would be a game changer or not, I don't know. But as your article suggested, my guess is that the U.S. would not respond to the um, detonation of of a Russian nuclear weapon, certainly not a demonstration one, but perhaps even one on the ground in Ukraine with another nuclear detonation of the U.S.'s own that they would try to use this as a moment to further isolate off Russia and make the case that uh, its leader has gone completely off the deep end. That's a good framing. And I think what I'd like to do is now turn to Emma and Doug and John in sequence and, and, and sort of talk about how you reckon the threat. I would add a footnote that I've seen on Twitter, which is highly reliable, of course, that uh, there were a series of fires in and around Moscow today, one of which took place at the factory where they developed the Iskander missile. Another big fire took place at a a chemical solvents plant. This could all be some of David Sanger's cyber friends. Who knows what's causing this, but it does color this. In any event, Emma, how do you reckon the threat? Is it just saber rattling or is there more to it? 
Well, I think we're in a pretty dangerous situation and Putin has proved that he is willing to do just about anything. So we do need to take this really seriously and we can't just dismiss it as saber-rattling. We really see he's already taken steps to destroy parts of Ukraine and you know, they've destroyed cities, infrastructure, medical centre. And I think there's an assumption here that you wouldn't necessarily use something like a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine because you'd contaminate the ground and the earth for for decades. But I think we have to question this assumption here when we're looking at a Putin who seems pretty uh, bent on achieving his goals. And I don't think it's out of the question that he could potentially use something like a tactical nuclear weapon in this war. Now, I do want to put a footnote on that, though, which is to say that a tactical nuclear weapon is a big deal. So I think there's been a bit of reporting around the place that a tactical nuclear weapon could be a small type of nuclear weapon. It wouldn't matter as much, could be used on the battlefield. But you need to keep in mind that from what we know about Russian nuclear weapons is uh, tactical nuclear weapons, they could be around 10 kilotons, which is just a bit smaller than the size of the Hiroshima bomb, which is 15 kilotons. So I did want to make that distinction that what we're talking about here could be a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, which would be devastating. And I think it could be possible. Yeah. And in the article that I did, it was, in fact, your predecessor in your current job, Joe Serencion, who pointed out the same thing, which is to say there are no small nukes, right? This would have a big, a big effect. And we can come back to that. Doug, how do you, how do you reckon of the seriousness of the threat? Well, I think it's got to be serious because we don't really know Vladimir Putin's calculus. So to one extent, you have to believe what he says, and you have to take his, de- his declarations to heart. But on the other hand, you know, he also said he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. So it's very difficult to, to discern what's real and what's not real. I, one thing I, I thought I'd point out, David, is the distinction between his approach with declaratory statements and then this ICBM test contrasted with our approach or our, our counter, right, which was to, to postpone a scheduled ICBM test. And also to make clear that a nuclear war cannot be won, should never be fought, and, and, and so forth. So on the one hand, he's escalating. On the other hand, at least in declaratory terms, he's escalating. And on the other hand, we're taking a very deep breath and trying to, trying to appear responsible. I think there's a danger here, not only of the upper threshold that we're all talking about, which is crossing the threshold of nuclear in perhaps biological or chemical warfare, but also a lower threshold that is also a bit of a presents a bit of a risk. And that is under-responding or neglecting. And I think that the the game here has to be played between avoiding that upper risk, crossing the nuclear threshold, but also not doing enough in preparation and looking sort of casual uh, on the lower end. That's a good point. John, before we Start with you. I do want to quickly add in here because a lot of people probably listen to this and think, well, Bill Burns brought this up and the U.S. has made a pattern during this war of of sort of using the intelligence that we've got in order to stay ahead of the game. In this particular case, he and the agency and others in the U.S. government are very quick to point out he didn't say this based on intelligence. He said it based on Russian doctrine and that Russia has a slightly lower threshold for the use of nuclear weapons in other countries, but that there were no evidence signs this was imminent. Anyway, go ahead, John. Look, I I agree with Doug and and Emma and David that the risk is not zero. Russia has nuclear weapons. They reserve the right to use them first. They are fully capable of employing them. 
And Vladimir Putin is losing the war and has painted himself into a very difficult corner. That being said, the United States has nuclear weapons. We reserve the right to use them first. Our doctrine is actually pretty similar to that of Russia, which is that we reserve the right to use them in response to chemical, biological, large-scale conventional attack, existential threats. So I don't think that Putin is necessarily doing anything different than we ourselves do, except for the fact that he's invaded a sovereign country and is now trying to use his nuclear weapons as a shield to hold off NATO, to hold off the United States from employing the full conventional capability that we have at our disposal. And I would argue that it's working pretty effectively. President Biden has said he's not going to put American troops on the ground because he doesn't want World War III. He's drawn the line at providing additional advanced capabilities to Ukraine because he doesn't want this to escalate. And I think he's right that the risk of escalation is real, but that's the reality of the nuclear age. And it means that even if we're spending 10 times what Russia is spending on defense, we can't take advantage of it because the nuclear weapon capability that they possess counters our advantage. So, David, one thing that seems clear here is that Putin is not making these threats out of strength. He's actually making them out of weakness, perceived weakness, a sense that they could be losing fear of uh, intervention from NATO. One of the things that I don't think is fully appreciated at this moment is NATO has more troops, better equipped troops around Ukraine than Russia has in Ukraine. So not only is Russia having to contend with the Ukrainian army that's showing you know, considerable strength versus them, but NATO has lots of conventional means of responding that don't require this. What, what, do, you, what do you think about that, David? Let me take those two in order. First, he is responding out of weakness. And as Director Burns pointed out in his speech, but many others have pointed out to us along the way, in some ways that's more worrisome because a weak Russia may be more dangerous in its paranoia, in its falling back to nuclear weapons than a strong Russia would be. I mean, this is a classic old problem in international relations. You know, would you rather be dealing with a, a strong China or a weak China? We're asking the same question about Russia. The second, and I've got some of this in a news analysis that's in the Times, uh, was posted last night electronically and and is in the print editions today, is that while we think Putin is losing, and I think by most objective factors, including the fact that he's had to withdraw from, from the area around Kiev, he is losing. He doesn't think he's losing. And he's saying that to everybody. U.S. intelligence believes he's actually convinced himself of it. We've seen world leaders who are isolated convince themselves of pretty bizarre things. Think Saddam Hussein, right? Think Muammar Gaddafi. So that adds to the complication. You are right. There are more NATO troops around Ukraine than there are Russian troops in Ukraine. However, the NATO troops around Ukraine don't help you any in Ukraine, other than to ferry the um, weapons that we're uh, providing to them to the border. And I think one of the big questions that the administration has been debating internally, but if they've answered, I haven't heard the answer, is should Putin make use of a nuclear weapon? Should he make use of a chemical weapon? Would that change the calculus about not sending NATO in? My guess is that with Biden, it wouldn't change it. 
Yeah, I can go a slight step further than that, which is to say that in the conversations I've had, not probably as 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 extensive as conversations you've had, I don't get any impression that they would send troops in. I do, however, get the impression that they would seriously consider limited over-the-horizon kind of strikes against particular targets that might be involved as a source of origin of a WMD. Emma, Doug talked about the sort of parameters of response, uh, not wanting to go too high, also not wanting to go too low. Based on what you know, how do you think we're getting that calculus? I think that is obviously, as Doug pointed out, a really tricky calculus, because the last thing you want to be doing is sending a signal to Vladimir Putin that threatening to use nuclear weapons or some kind of chemical attack is going to get you what you want. That would be a really disastrous outcome of this whole crisis. So I do think that the right response isn't to send in troops. If there were a nuclear detonation, if, if, if Putin did uh, use a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine, I think we absolutely don't respond in kind. We don't send in NATO and US forces into Ukraine. I mean, that's a possibility. But I think the first option would be to have a non-military response really ramp up the sanctions, do some um, cyber retaliation. You'd need to really beef up the extreme international isolation, which we're not seeing yet. And so hopefully if there were some kind of nuclear attack that would really invoke the ire and outrage, definitely of the West, you would hope that others would come along. I don't know that we can rely on that right now, such as China, India and others who, even with nuclear weapon use by Putin, whether they would actually come round to the side of actually isolating Putin extremely, which would need to happen. So, you know, I think that would be the best case scenario. Obviously, it's going to depend what might what might play out, but I think we have to be very careful not to get into potential escalation that could lead to some kind of all-out nuclear war. So we're in a difficult spot, and I think we're there because of the way Putin is using his nuclear weapons offensively. So Doug and John both, I talked to both of you when I was doing this column about what the response ought to be. And so how do you split the difference there? Too much and too little. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about here. Doug, what do you think the right response would be? So I think it's a, a package of uh, response, uh, response measures. First of all, on the military front, I agree that most likely would be a counterattack on the origin of the Russian attack. So if this is an air base or if this is a missile site, a missile location, and so forth. Now, that, of course, is fraught with escalatory risk as well, because it's entirely possible that this hypothetical tactical nuclear weapon strike would be launched from Russian territory. But I think with precise, long-range, conventional, not, not nuclear, conventional arms, you could strike uh, the origin of the attack. If the origin of the attack is unclear, or perhaps it's not detected, then you could launch, a, a, again, a conventional strike against a, a potential theater nuclear weapon delivery site. So think, for example, an Iskander ballistic missile site in Kaliningrad or, or something like that. But I think there's got to be a military dimension to the response. I think perhaps along the lines that Emma suggested, more significant would be what I would refer to as the nuclear economic option, which would be, and I would go all the way to consideration of an embargo. So for the sort of 50% of global GDP 
which is not abiding by the sanctions regime, has opted out of the sanctions regime, you could simply enforce the sanctions regime by way of embargo. Now, that's serious. It's extensive in terms of resources. But I think that crossing the nuclear threshold would demand something like that. And then, and then likewise, on the political front, I'd consider a, a sort of the, a nuclear political option. So, for example, begin serious conversations at the UN about, about um, dismissing Russia from the Security Council, which I'm not even sure how you would, one would go about that. But it's a serious conversation that ought to be happening if, for the first time in 75 years, Putin decides to cross the nuclear threshold. To my knowledge, there is no provision for. Well, I've, asked, for I've asked the family UN expert, which is not me, that's my wife, Jane. And, uh, and she says pretty much the same thing that there is no, it's a little bit like you, the NATO treaty, right? There's no provision to dismiss someone from NATO in the treaty. But that doesn't mean a serious conversation couldn't take place. Obviously, it would have to take place at the General Assembly, uh, among the General Assembly, not, not the Security Council itself. Yeah, we should have had your. Your family UN expert on here with us, you know, she would have. Here's the problem, David. If you invite Jane, I'll never be invited again. You'll <laughs> simply invite her. So, so this is why I resist this. I don't even put these on a family calendar. Knowing Jane very well, David, I can, I can back this up. If you knew Jane and got her on here, you would never invite Doug again. <laughs> I do know Jane, and I've actually chaired panels with Jane, and she was great. But so is Doug. You're both great, John. What about your uh, sense of the right response? I'll split the baby in half here. I mean, I agree. And, and having been in simulations and exercises in, in the situation room with senior government officials, I think a lot of this is going to seem familiar. The economic step, I think, is essential. And I think it wouldn't necessarily need to be enforced through embargo, although that's a possibility, but through secondary sanctions, where you could basically say to India, you now have to choose, are you going to do business with Russia that uses nuclear weapons or the United States, but you can't do both. That's been a very effective tool and not one that we've pulled out yet in the, uh, uh, the sanctions regime against Russia. So I think that's a possibility. I think the political front would have to be stepped up. And I have read a couple of good pieces, Doug. You should ask your wife about them. It's not kicking Russia out of the Security Council. It's simply giving Moscow's seat to Ukraine because Moscow was designated the successor to the Soviet Union by a political vote, but it didn't have to be that way. And Ukraine has just as much right to be a successor state to the Soviet Union as Russia. Now, that's a political decision. It has all sorts of implications for the United Nations. And I, I don't think that's necessarily where we would want to spend most of our capital. But if it prevented the Security Council from taking action, and I don't know that it would, that's, that's an option. But I'm going to disagree with Doug in particular about the, the military steps that he suggested. I understand the debate will go on, and I think it's the right one. But I think the United States and NATO should only take military action against Russian territory if they have to in order to win the conflict. If Ukraine is going to be eliminated, then I think the United States and NATO should take action. But the risk of escalation is severe. Attacking Russian territory is still attacking Russian territory. And one of the few things that could bail Putin out of the box that he's in is turning the war in Ukraine into a war between NATO and Russia. And so as horrible as the use of a nuclear weapon would be, unless it's an attack on NATO territory, I don't think we're going to be eager are quite frankly well advised to take military action against Russia itself. Because if you do that, then there's very little reason for Moscow not to start taking conventional military action against NATO itself, which then gets you in the escalation conflict that Emma warned about. And I can tell you that that debate will rage between political and military advisors in the White House, and President Biden will have to adjudicate. And I don't know where that will come out. 
Oh, I think we do know where that would come out. If you had President Biden unwilling to send a to send MIGs from NATO territory, no objection to the Ukrainians getting MIGs, but not wanting it to lift off from NATO territory. I think that tells you pretty quickly where where he would come on. But David, that, you know, this is also a moving target. Uh, that that was Biden's position several weeks ago. Yeah. And the day he announced a total of, by math is, I think, 90 sort of serious artillery pieces, uh, U.S. artillery pieces flowing into uh, into Ukraine. So so this is a bit of a moving target. And other allies have found ways to move heavier equipment to include apparently repair parts for MiGs to into the hands of the Ukrainians. So so I think this is is a bit of a dynamic here. That decision was not as clear cut even back then as it made out. I, I, my sense is that some parts of the U.S. government favored transferring the jets even back then, including the State Department, and that the objection came from the Department of Defense. David, I, I was going to jump in just very briefly. And, and you know, David Sanger knows uh, the president well for many years. But when presidents weigh these decisions in the face of a nuclear threat, I, I think it's really hard to predict how people will come out. I mean, it's, there are no bigger decisions for a president in, in terms of how to respond when it comes to the question of nuclear weapons. And I, I just think it's, it's hard to know exactly what they would decide unless you know all the parameters, all the decisions, what the allies are saying and really the way to history in that moment. So we're going to take a little bit of a break now, as we always do, say goodbye to the folks from the general public who've been with us for this first half hour. Say thanks for coming. Uh, if you want to get more of discussions like this, then you know the best thing to do is become a member, because then you'll get all the bonus content, the remaining third of this episode and others. And the easiest way to do that is go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. For those of you who are members, stand by. We'll be starting again momentarily.